0: Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Monday, March 6th. Is it inevitable that our personal data will be mined by apps we use regularly like TikTok? We get some tips to protect our data online and learn about a concept known as digital resignation from mei Fong, PhD student from Concordia University.
1: We've talked many times on the program about the increasing applications for artificial intelligence in our lives, from education to business marketing and even advertising. Well now a new use for AI, helping lawyers handle their caseloads. We get details on the, how the technology could streamline the legal process from Abdi Abdid, professor of law from the University of Toronto.
0: Artificial Sweeteners are in so many food and drink products, but are they actually bad for our health? A new study shows one particular sweetener could increase your risk of having a stroke or a heart attack. We discuss the research with Dr. Ted Jablonski, our on-call family physician.
1: And finally, we meet Calgary-based cancer warrior, Robin Matre. Robin shares her gripping personal story and offers up some tips to stay positive during adversity on another edition of Motivational Monday.
0: Have you resigned to the fact that it's inevitable that our data will be mined by apps like TikTok? Joining us to discuss what's called digital digital resignation and the importance of continuing to protect our online data is Meilin Fong, PhD student at Concordia University. Good morning to you, Meilin.
2: Good morning, uh, Sue and Andy. Thanks for having me on the show this this morning. Thank
0: you for being here. Very timely topic. Can you explain and define the term digital resignation and, and what it means?
2: Of course. So every day we're solicited for our personal information to access technology that we need to fully participate in our personal and professional lives. Think about it. You can't really go through life without email these days. And so digital resignation is a term that was coined by researchers Nora Draper and Joseph Tureau to describe people's desire to protect their personal information, but their frustrations and feelings of powerlessness that they're forced to give it away and then that'll be used in ways that they didn't explicitly consent to.
1: Let's talk about ways to address digital resignation according to this article that we're talking about here. What are some of the ways?
2: Well, it's a complex issue with no simple solutions, but regulations can play a big part in uh, determining what's permitted and holding companies accountable and also restoring trust. And also as consumers and citizens, we can also become more informed and take steps to protect our own personal data.
0: So to a certain extent, let's let's break down the onus of the individual in that I I was saying earlier, Maylin, to Sue, that I feel like FOMO, like I I don't want to miss out on something. So whether or not it's the app or a website that I I have to be involved with, I get on board. Is it to a certain extent are my head in the sand or are our heads in the sand thinking a company must have governors in place to protect me? Um, Is is that giving these companies too much credit?
2: Well... This is one of the things we talked uh, talked about in the article is that, you know, without these governors having an independent uh, uh-huh. role, so being um, not answering necessarily to the company and having the full authority to enforce privacy laws, in some ways they're merely symbolic. So like if you take, for example, Google, they have teams of AI ethicists, but the moment they flag an issue, and this was the case in 2020 with Timnit Gebru. Uh, she raised an issue about facial recognition technology discriminating against women and people of colors. They essentially fired her. So it's really important that these these privacy um, people inside companies, these privacy officers, be fully independent.
1: Uh, We are referring to an article on The Conversation, theconversation.com online if you want to go in and check it out. The article also suggests that we can take steps to protect our own privacy, like using privacy-enhancing tools, the VPNs, encryption, etc. Can we all access that quite readily, or is that just something we just kind of say, oh, forget it, everybody knows our information anyway?
2: Uh, no, I think this is technology you can use. I use multiple technologies and uh, techniques. Um, and actually our research shows that there's a variety of, way, a variety of strategies that people use. Um, some people just refuse to give the data in the first place. And if they, if they have to, they'll provide the bare minimum and everything else they'll opt out of. And if they can't, like let's say a social media um, channel wants your, um, your birthday, for example, they actually might just give fake information altogether. Um, and then some companies will look to deal with, uh, with some people might look to deal with companies that take a firmer stance on data privacy. For example, some might use the web browsers Firefox or Safari instead of Chrome so that they're not giving all of their information to Google. And then some people use uh, different profiles to segregate different aspects of their lives. Like they'll use an email address for e-commerce, they'll use another one for junk mail, they'll use another one for um, their actual correspondence. So there's, there's steps that people can take that are not, you know, you don't have to be too tech savvy to implement.
0: We're speaking with mei Fong, Ph.D. student at Concordia University. And uh, mei it's interesting that we can take a defensive driving course to keep us safe on the roads. Hey, you can take avalanche safety courses if you're going to go in backcountry during winter. And I know a lot of companies have protocols in place to make sure that their employees know uh, which links to click and what to, to avoid. But for the average individual, are there courses available to, to, to take to, to remain safe online with our privacy?
2: You know, in our research, we didn't exactly look at that, but I can tell you as an individual, I haven't seen very much about that. So one of the recommendations of our research was actually that there be a lot more literacy initiatives so that people become more informed about this. Um, And and then they can also take a stance to protect their own privacy. Important conversation. Thank you so much for your time this morning, Maylin. Thank you. Thanks, Maylin Fong,
1: PhD student at Concordia University.
0: Advancements in technology have historically impacted blue-collar jobs, but with advancements in AI, artificial intelligence, making headlines, could white-collar jobs also be impacted? Joining us to discuss how the legal profession, legal profession, underscore that, could be impacted is Abdi ID, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto, Faculty of Law, and Legal Innovation Strategist at Blue Jay. Good morning to you, Abdi.
3: Good morning. Thanks
0: for having me. Thank you for being here how 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 could we see this fitting in to the work that a law firm does artificial intelligence day to day How do we see this
3: so you're seeing AI being used in a variety of ways in the legal setting. One major way is for research. you now have computational technologies able to help predict how future courts are likely to rule and so you have situations where rather than conducting hours and hours of legal research, lawyers are able to start with a more informed basis, and really give their client more robust advice. And so we're talking about AI technology right now, advanced to the level where it can make lawyers faster, better, smarter, not only at managing their tasks, but actually performing them.
1: Professor, are we confident that the information, the research, the analysis that they're getting back in return is accurate and will hold up in a court of law, for example?
3: Well, in the first instance, lawyers still have a duty to provide their clients with their own judgment and advice. So any information they're receiving from any technology they're using, they're verifying, they're considering, they're reconciling against their own experience, own expertise, they're performing additional research. We're really talking about AI raising the floor at this stage and lawyers can't really you know, avoid their obligation to provide their own analysis to their clients. In terms of what holds up in court, right now we're talking about technologies that are more restrictive than direct in the sense that they're really helping professionals be better as opposed to replacing professionals.
0: Okay, so, so more as a tool and a resource. Will this be something that we as clients, if, if you're having to use a law firm, should investigate? Or should this be something that is upfront when you're you know hiring a lawyer or a law firm? Yeah, I think clients,
3: you know, in all kinds of industries, clients are demanding that their professional intermediary use cutting-edge technologies. And so if you're a client who is interested in procuring a lawyer, you might ask a question about, here, using some of the more modern tools. Um, that, that, you'd be interested in that because it would help cut down your, um, your bills uh, in the long run. You'd be assured that your lawyer isn't just spinning their wheels and actually has a sound starting basis. And so you should be curious. In terms of um, whether you should be concerned, that's a different question. Really, um, your lawyer is going to continue to perform the tasks the way they're accustomed to, which is by using their brain, using their experience, using their judgment, and layering that atop of the technology gives you and so clients should be assured that lawyers that use AI are going to be better informed.
1: What about job losses? We must anticipate that then if AI might help lawyers, you know, what about the role of paralegals and legal assistants, et etc?
3: It's a good question. So there's a couple ways to answer that. One way to answer it is, you know, rather directly, which is lawyers, AI is not going to replace lawyers, but it's likely to replace lawyers that don't use AI. And the reason for that is because AI is helping to automate some of the drudge work involved in lawyering. You know, people didn't go to law school so they could spend hours and hours and hours trying to find a single case. They wanted to be creative. They want to be. They want to provide strategic value. Clients demand more than just um, helping to locate what the law is. They want a strategy. They want you to provide value. They want you to solve their problems. And so, if you can automate that drudge work, then you can you can save and free up time to be doing more of that creative lawyering. So that's one major benefit. The other major benefit. Um, when you think about it is the opportunity to take on more legal representation. So right now we have an access to justice crisis in this country in that lawyers are uh, plentiful, but they're not available to serve everyone's needs. And so if you get into a situation where lawyers can reduce the amount of time they spend on a given engagement, they can take on more representation, work on more cases. And there's also less pressure for them to make money off a single engagement as well. Um, And so...
0: Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, we're speaking with uh, Professor Abdeed, uh, Abdeed, Idid, I'deed, uh, I'deed, sorry, I'm sorry, uh, sir, Idid uh, from, of course, the Toronto Faculty of Law and Legal Innovation Strategist at Blue Jay. Uh, Professor Ideed, let's talk about the, the something you just referenced again. I'm, I'm super skeptical in that this will save us money as clients of a law firm. You, you really think that they would pass those savings down to us if it takes less time or will this just be incorporated to make their jobs easier?
3: I think it really kind of depends on um, how, mature, how fast the technology is mature. If they get to a place where they can automate, which they're starting to, they can automate a lot of the research, then as a client, you're well within your right to scrutinize your legal bill and say, why am I being charged 10-15 hours for research for the kind of thing which I know technology exists to be able to assist with? Um, likewise, for things like document review or contract review, due diligence, AI is now capable now of at least providing a lawyer with a starting point. It should cut down their time. And so, you know, clients should always be informed, should always scrutinize their legal bills and ask questions about whether or not they're really getting their value for money. And so this is, there's a bit of um, public education that needs to happen around what technologies are capable of doing so that people can be um, healthy and skeptical about the kinds of legal services they're paying for.
1: Uh, Professor, overall, then I'm gathering you think this is a positive using AI within the legal system. It,
3: you know, efficiencies, accurate, accessible, all of that. Do, do you believe so? I think it helps us resolve a major problem, which is the fact that many people's legal needs are unmet, including people who have middle and upper middle class incomes. You know, the crisis access to justice is not only one of the poor, even though they're the ones that are most principally affected. There's opportunity there. The proliferation of AI in general, it has a lot raises some ethical and policy questions and regulatory questions that we need to collectively think about. But the way to think about those questions is not to bury our head in the sand and act like it's not coming. It's to acknowledge that this is already coming. There's already this trajectory towards more and not less AI use. And so we should consider those questions together, come up with a consensus about what we can accept and not accept, and sort of see if we can land a plane safely, which I'm optimistic we can.
0: Professor, because this is in its infancy, infancy we don't know how it will impact the legal world what does this mean perhaps for the future of you know people who are thinking in society as younger folks going to university to take a career up in in the law uh, could it be a barrier because you think well I'm not too sure if there will be a job for me in five years or eight years down the road
3: so you know I teach law students every day and I get this question all the time and I tell them this is the best time to be a lawyer why because a lot of what I was doing and a lot of what the listeners are doing those of us and legal experience was, um, you know, performing a lot of tasks which didn't engage our creative mind. It didn't engage our intellect. It didn't engage the skills and expertise that we develop over time. And we're talking about using technology to automate some of those things, the same way a spreadsheet might automate some of the regular calculations that accountants used to do. And so now you're more free to engage in the sort of creative, strategic, um, more intelligent, engaging kind of lawyering possible. There's that. And then there's the other thing, which is, the whole new mess of legal problems that is being created by the intersection of technology and our society. We need smart, enterprising young lawyers to help solve these problems. We need smart, enterprising young lawyers to think about the new frontiers in privacy, the new frontiers in data security, the new frontiers in algorithmic decision making and all of that. And then the lawyers who are involved in sort of the classic practice areas, those social problems that generate those legal issues still exist. Right? There's still going to be a need for criminal defense lawyers, immigration lawyers, personal injury lawyers, because people are not going to be uh, getting hurt less. People are not going to be immigrating less. There's still going to be those um, legal, pro- legal issues that exist for lawyers to resolve, and especially, especially through in the corporate and commercial world where activity becomes more complex and, and the need for lawyers becomes more acute. And so I would say I'm optimistic not just about technology but about the legal profession.
1: Fascinating discussion, one that's not going away. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Abdi Ideed, Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law and Legal Innovation Strategist at Blue Jay.
0: We've been told for years, maybe decades, to avoid sugar. So we searched out products with artificial sweeteners in them. There's so many on the market now. Mm -hmm. But are they even worse than the real thing? A new study shows that at least one sweetener is linked to an increased risk of stroke and heart attack. It's kind of scary stuff. Joining us to discuss is Dr. J. Good morning to you, sir.
4: Good morning.
0: Let's talk about this. There's no shortage. Some of them have been around for decades. Some, you can't even pronounce the names of them. Let's get into it. Are some artificial sweeteners worse than others?
4: Well, it appears that this one, erythritol has been tagged as being a potential problem uh, compared to others. So, yes, we at least have one that now, this is probably the first uh, real bit of science that we've had to to tag one of these uh, sugar substitutes as being a potential really problematic chemical.
1: Erythritol, that's the one we should look for, found in in keto foods particularly, is where it seems to have popped up. But do you think, Dr. J, I mean, are these things addictive? Because it feels like we're supposed to substitute sugar for these and then we get addicted to something different. Yeah,
4: I'm not sure it's addiction, but, I, you know, my comment on this would be we have to get used to not having a sweet tooth in the sense of if you like coffee, uh, learn to drink it black or why does it need to be sweetened? So if we can get that sugary uh, taste out of our mouth, then we don't have to use a sugar substitute. We don't have to use sugar or the real thing nor the, a fake thing, uh, hence erythritol. Which is a natural occurring substance. So we do, you know, having a bit of sweetness in fruits, in different foods is okay. But we we have to get used to not having everything be very sweet all the time.
0: I have been defending. Maybe it's just because it's me. (laughs) Because you drink um, it. I've been defending Diet Coke and (laughs) aspartame because it's been around like since the early '80s, and I don't. I've had no issue with it. I drink a lot less than I used to. Uh, So can we can we pick and choose like you say with this erythritol i hope i'm saying correctly one thing but are there ones that you would recommend over another when it comes to artificial
4: yeah so this is a this is a tough question because honestly this one gets tagged but next year we might tag sorbitol we might tag all the aspartame who knows what's waiting out there Uh, i think we have to be careful with all of these like everything in moderation um and perhaps this one stands out as being a little bit unique, even worse than some of the others. But I think even the the standard sugar substitutes, I think we should be careful and in moderation,
0: definitely.
1: Is there any that are better, would you think? Like as, um, uh, uh, oh, I just lost the name of it, the the more natural one that's stevia. Stevia, yes.
4: Stevia. So interesting. So stevia gets tagged with, with uh, this erythritol. So apparently a lot of the... Uh, the um, products actually have a mixture of both oh. uh, because some of these, uh, like monk fruit they, they reference, and stevia are very, very sweet, but they don't actually look like sugar. So they throw in erythritol uh, because it actually comes out looking very much like sugar and add the two together. So again, be very, very careful with some of these because they may not be pure substitutes.
0: Mm. When they are in products, particularly when those folks, we we call it Diet Coke, let's be honest. When people are drinking the Diet Coke, they think that A, they're not going to contribute to weight gain to a certain extent. But now we're hearing bits and pieces of some of these artificial sweeteners have a trigger in them that might actually uh, contribute to weight gain. Can you tell us if if that is a a true thing? And, And if so, how does that work?
4: Well, a lot of this is, it's very difficult to say is it cause and effect. They correlate different things. So if you look at um uh, people uh, who struggle with weight and obesity stats, they're very likely to be highly associated with uh, diet uh, diet drinks. So is it that diet drink causes the obesity or people who are obese tend to want to drink non-sugared or diet pop? So I think we have to be very careful with that data. So I'm not sure that one thing triggers another, but those two things are associated together, if that makes sense.
1: I feel like nobody wants to study it too, too closely because let's face it, that is a multi-billion dollar business, these uh, chemical sweeteners. So uh, it'll be an ongoing discussion for sure. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. J. Okay, you betcha. Have a great day. Dr. Ted Jablonski is our on-call family physician. She's been battling for years, but she is a fighter and she will win this battle. Joining us for this Motivational Monday is, well, we call her a cancer warrior. Her name is Robin Matre, and uh, she makes it her goal every day to continue shining her light while living with stage four cancer. Good morning, Robin. Thanks for being in studio with us.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: It's a pleasure to see you. I know it's been a tough road and you just finished another round of, was it brain radiation this time?
5: Yes, I had to take care of some pesky buddies in my brain and uh, so I, I just finished a whole brain radiation and and um, reconditioning now. So. Blast
1: those babies out of there and then you take some time to get your health back. Exactly. Um, can you give us a little backstory about when
5: you were diagnosed and sort of what that looked like? For sure. So here's the Coles Notes version. Uh, 2016 I was diagnosed with inflammatory breast cancer and it's a pretty aggressive cancer but Uh, somehow here we are 2023 and uh, I've learned to work with it you know uh, everybody has a thing and mine happens to be cancer and uh, so one of those pieces that uh, helped me get through all of that I'm on my seventh line of treatment so I'll be on ongoing uh, chemotherapy for the rest of my life which I am totally cool with because that means for the rest of my life Mm -hmm. right and so uh, I, I took on a thought, uh, well, I didn't take it on, it's part of my heritage. It's something called Sisu. So I'm half Finnish, and my Finn family often says I have Sisu. And it's not about a positivity mindset. It is in a part, but what it is is stepping into your adversity with courage. And some days it's just a pebble. Other days it is I'm carrying this amount of courage that I can't believe that I'm carrying. Sisu, I love yeah. it. Is it S-I-S-U? Yeah. S-I-S-U, Let's
1: Sisu, look that SISU. Up. yep.
0: Yeah, no, so, so it's interesting, Robin, because, yeah, you've mentioned seven seven treatments, 2016, almost basically you average it out, it's one a year. Yes. You've got the, the right attitude now. It's it's incredible to hear you talk about it the way you are. But I want to bring you back to 2016 because, you know, in school we learn different things to prepare us for, you know, adulthood and growing up. They don't prepare us for cancer. So when you're sitting in the doctor's office and they say cancer, how does that impact you? And can you tell us how that felt the months moving ahead?
5: Sure. That first year I walked around feeling stunned. I had, um, you know, I had my family I had a 13-year-old and a 15-year-old, and they're going through their own things as as young people uh-huh. and transitioning. And here, uh, mom is diagnosed with a significant illness. And I walked around in a daze, and I didn't know how to move forward. And I started gaining knowledge, my community, and... People came around me with such great support and I started saying yes to support. I'm a pretty stoic person and I don't ask for a lot of help, uh, but I started saying yes. And I started just really looking at what I could control. And those were the pieces that I held on to. I couldn't control all the things happening in my body. The medical community needed to do that. And they did, I think, a fantastic job. And so then I figured out how to control the things I could. So I could control uh, the time I spent. I could control how to uh, listen to my doctors, advocate for myself. I became my own uh, um, uh, patient advocate, and and taking charge of those pieces and then when i got stronger i started taking control of the things that i could fill my bucket so that the next time uh because i knew there would be a next time it wasn't going away uh how could i step into that so i did um really low-key fitness competitions <laughs> the uh, one that I can, I mean,
1: you, yes. you, you did it two years in a row, didn't you? With, um, I had a gap here. Okay, so yeah. you, Andy, with Sandra Buchert, yeah, yeah. one on personal fitness, Robin took part in the... Um,
5: Misfit. Misfit oh, yeah. competition. Yes.
1: And, That's heavy-duty and stuff. And rocked
5: it. Did my best. And I felt great because I was doing something a little stronger than I did the day before. I went to Hungary. I went painting. Uh, I love to paint. Uh, I started speaking. I started writing. I started. I just found these conduits to get these pieces out of me, so that I could express myself in a way and still feel good about myself. Uh, still feel strong. I went to Panama. I went to the. You know, I went to Mexico. I went. You know, I traveled when I could. You know, I, I, like I wasn't pushing myself beyond limits. I was finding those moments where I could do those things.
1: How is it, Robin, with the kids? How do you continue to you know, keep them motivated? Did they motivate you in turn?
5: It's back and forth. You know, this, this last go is really scary. You hear brain tumors and everybody freezes yeah. because there's a, a lot of um, media play about what a brain tumor looks like. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I am so fortunate that I have an opportunity to be on a drug that's just been released in uh in canada that i can access and it has hopefully remarkable results and and the data is there so i hold on to that and uh, my doctor says it very very well you die one day you live all the rest mm.
0: that's that is powerful it's brilliant
5: you know uh, yeah.
0: i want to ask you this uh, rob because i know that we people put us in boxes people define us and their stereotypes and we do it to ourselves. Some people we know that we work with, that's all they do is they work and they identify as job A, B, or C, whatever. For sure. Or you're just, you're just about family, and this is great. Whatever you identified yourself as before, this is who I am. This is the tribe I belong to. Yeah. You have cancer. You don't want to be defined as, oh, I'm Robin with cancer. Exactly. How did you get away from that?
5: Well, um, I get away from that by being respectful of it. I'm aware of it. But it doesn't define my every step. Some days, like right now, I'm in a pretty intense part of coming back from something pretty big. But, you know, I, I try to find something like this opportunity today to just step out of my out of my mental fugue, mm-hmm. if you will, and just step forward into it. And, you know, I'm going to ride this energy all day today and probably tomorrow, right? because I hope that someone can pick up something from what I'm saying and say, you know what, I can get up today and brush my teeth. Like, that's, that's as difficult as it can be sometimes as um, I unload half my dishwasher, because that's all I have the energy to do. But I unloaded half my dishwasher, right? And so and I, I just want to circle back to my children for a minute. You know, it was a very difficult time. And at times they'll say to me, when I'm in my more stable, quiescent states, they'll, they'll say to me, we kind of forget you have cancer. And I said, perfect. That's great. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Yeah.
1: That's the way it should be, That's right? what I need from you. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll ride your motivation and your positivity for days as well, and hopefully the listeners will too. Thank you so much for coming in and, and coming into the studio and sharing your story with us.
5: I appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: This is Motivational Monday. That is Robin Matre, Cancer Warrior. And uh, she's just an awesome, totally cool lady who, it, you're right, Robin, cancer does not define you. You know, you define you. You've just got a great, amazing, bubbly personality. And I uh, can't wait to see and spend more time with you after this one.
5: Thank you.